The title for this morning's message is You is You. Now, my preferred uh, address to a group of people I'm talking to is you guys. I don't do the y'all thing. Uh, some of you guys are real Southern with the UNs or whatever. Uh, you guys, I think, is the appropriate address, but you may feel differently. The question is, sometimes, if somebody says you, who are they talking to? And uh, so we need to sometimes uh, figure out when there's something that's in Scripture that tells us you, does that mean me or is it somebody else? And so you this morning is you. So we'll find out if that means you, okay? Um, I, I need to define real quickly what it means to be made holy. And uh, that's going to serve a, a foundation um, for this morning and also in the next uh, coming weeks. And so what we're going to, a part of the book of Acts, where um, what, what we've been discovering along the way and how the Lord has been growing the church through the Spirit is sort of laying the framework for us. But the next few chapters are full of drama and discord in the church because there is some frustration, confusion, different groups and factions are sort of warring about against what it means to belong and how do you belong and is, is, uh, is there some extra rules besides the fact of just mere, or I say mere, but faith alone essentially. And so that gets settled over the next few chapters of Acts. And so this morning we're, we're centering on um, a foundation about what it what baptism does and what, what baptism is. Now, baptism's uh, already come up a few times. I've, I've uh, waited till this point in the story to really address it. So this morning is not exhaustive, as I usually is not on the topic, but it's uh, a foundation so that as we hit these things over the next few weeks, you have that foundation to kind of go back to and say, okay, well, here's what we kind of said this was for, and here's what it's about, and, here's, and so we can navigate um, some of this controversy a little better. So, to be made holy is not to be washed good enough that you're clean enough to be called holy. To be made holy is a declaration, okay? It is to call something holy. It is to designate it for a specific purpose. So to be called, claimed, or owned, uh, to have a special designation is to be what holy is. Now, when we think of holiness, we primarily think of, of something being extra clean, Right? And, and there's an element to that that's, that's very true and necessary, but um, that sort of confuses the issue when we think that we're called to be holy, and then we think, well, that means I need to be really clean. Well, you do need to do your best to avoid sin and walk in the ways of the Lord by the help of the Holy Spirit, but you can never be holy enough to really be holy. So the key here is that there's another avenue to holiness, and it's by way of God's calling you holy, not your earning holy status. And so that's important today as we address this, okay? So I'm not going to go back and uh, recap over what Aaron has done. I'm only going to go back to the end of the chapter. He kind of concluded his message reading um, the rest of this passage. And so this is the end of Acts chapter 10, and I'm going to start in verse 44. So it says, let me stop here, let me pray, and then we'll go to the Word. Father, we ask this morning that um, you would be in uh, our midst, as we know that you are, but we trust that uh, as we open your word together, that you will show us your truth. Father, I ask um, for you to do what I cannot, which is to speak your words. I'm just a vessel, and so I ask that you would help me to be a transparent one and a holy one for you, and that you would prepare us to receive your truth this morning 
Give us what we do not have, which is spiritual eyes and ears and hearts of flesh put in by you that we might receive what you would speak. Father, we ask this in the name of your son. And everyone said, amen. Okay. It's never good to preach without God's help. Okay. So here we go. Verse 44. This is while Peter was still saying these things. These things is the gospel. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Okay? So that's just to jog your memory on the story that Peter's gone into the Gentiles. He's preached the word. Holy Spirit has fallen. And uh, he's followed that up with the command for them to be baptized. Okay? Now, verse, uh, or excuse me, chapter 11 now in verse 1. And it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, now stop there, that's, that's, a, new, that's a new title, and uh, it's going to come into play, like I said, over the next few chapters a lot more, and the circumcision party would be those who are Jews by birth, who have followed the law, and think that the law is the way that you are called one of God's people. You must obey the, the, the right of circumcision, or the sign of circumcision, to be called one of God's people. And so the circumcision party, as they're going to be called sort of from here on out, uh, they, they come and they criticize him, that's Peter, saying, you went to uncircumcised men, and you ate with them. Okay? Now, criticized here means they, they scrutinize like to a very small, detailed level. And it also has the, the connotation of judging oneself to be superior. So can you, can you get the, the gist of what's happening here? They hear that the Gentiles have received the word. And when Peter returns, come back, and they're saying, we're better than you. And there's two points of criticism here, not one. The first point of criticism is that you went into the Gentiles. And then the second point is that, they, that you shared a table of fellowship with them, right? That you went in and not only did you go, but you ate with them. So it's like, a, it's like he didn't just cross the line. He went over the fence and he mooned them from the other side. This is essentially how, how they're viewing what's happened because table fellowship is significant because of the laws of clean and unclean, what's kosher and not kosher. And that Peter, um, if you remember, He's, he was initially very resistant to the idea that he should ever be part of anything that's unclean. So when he has that vision, remember, he's, he's resistant towards it. But ultimately, God has been working Peter towards this to align him and then subsequently align the whole church towards the truth of understanding why God reckons things as clean or unclean. So that's, that's what God has been working Peter towards. That's what he, he wants Peter to understand so that Peter can pass that down to the church. And so just a reminder here that clean and unclean is simply a reference to a condition or a status that's reckoned to something or someone in regard to their worship, okay? So when, when, um, when they return, when, when, excuse me, when Peter returns, the circumcision party who's still keeping the laws of circumcision and... Um, and clean and unclean, they're upset with Peter because he's violated this, this uh, tradition. So Peter's crossed the cultural line, not just of uh, opinion, but uh, it goes to the very heart then, if you think about it this way, of what it means to be a Jew. 
And that's, that's important because it's, it's not, you're thinking of this as, well, he's, he's violated their conscience on a particular matter. And what you're missing in that kind of a thought process is that who the Jews were was a people that were holy. They were distinct. They were unique. And so to violate the traditions around that was to go at the very core of what it means to be called God's people. Okay? So clean and unclean here is playing a significant role. Now let's look in verse 4. It says, But Peter began and explained it to them in order. That just means he's going to start at the beginning and he wants to give them the progression that he was privileged to have. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Now, real quick, I didn't say this when it happened, and I don't know if Aaron mentioned it. I, I, I don't want to make too much of it, but the fact that the, the, the sheet with unclean things is descending from heaven should have been like sort of also an indication that God has already accepted these things. They're in his presence. It, it descends from the place where God already is. So, so Peter's um, thought process, even in general, is already being, uh, being uh, pushed against in the fact that this, this sheet has descended from heaven. So it came down to him. He says, looking closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And we know because uh, we have this beautiful red letter print that that's the voice of Christ, if you have a red letter Bible. That's the voice of the Lord telling him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again. Where does it go back to? Into heaven, okay? So um, the purpose of Peter's holy bacon vision, okay? The purpose of that was effectively summarized in God's statement to him, which he said three times, what God has called clean, or what God has made clean, is not to be regarded or called common. So what correction is God making to Peter's thought process? And what is he then subsequently making to ours and the circumcision party? Is God changing the rules here? If he had rules before, and now he's telling Peter to do something different, is he changing the rules? And so this is an important question. So God had certainly given specific laws to Israel about what they should and should not do. Things that are clean or unclean. And there were, uh, this extended everything from ritual washings, clean and unclean foods, different activities, marriage requirements, worship regulations, even down to, if you know it, different kinds of material in one piece of cloth. Forbidden, right? You couldn't plant certain uh, different kinds of agriculture in the same field at the same time, okay? So God's purposes in giving these rules to, to Israel, we need to recognize what they are and then because we understand what they are, we can then understand what the foundation of those were. So what the laws did and what they did not do. I'm going to cover both, okay? So what did the laws that uh, were governing Israel, what did they do? So the laws were for Israel. They were for the nation that surrounded Israel or the nations that surround Israel. And they were also a prophetic picture. Three, three ways that the laws function, okay? So the laws set Israel apart from other peoples and other nations because of the kinds of things that they observe. They serve as a reminder to Israel every time they observe these laws that we serve a God who is not like other gods. We belong to a God that's not like other people's gods. And so everything that they did, whether it was in worship or whether it was in common society, reflected that truth. 
So it was a sign uh, for Israel about the God that they served, a reminder that they're distinct, separate, unique people from any other kind of people. So we have all of the nations that serve all these different gods, that have all these different rules, and then we have Israel, who's unique unto themselves. And so they were a, a law that functioned for Israel to remind them of that truth. But it also served as uh, a picture to the nations around that observe Israel, hopefully observing the laws in the way that God commanded them to, that they see that Israel serves a God that's not like my God. Israel serves a God that demands things my God doesn't demand or my gods don't demand. So they were also a picture to the nations around of what God is like, okay? And they were also pointing forward in a prophetic sense to the Messiah. So all the, all the function of the laws in general point towards a holy God, but a God who's going to bridge the gap between a, a holy God and an unholy people. And so by following these laws, they're reminded that they're not a clean people, they're an unclean people. But they get to be in this covenant relationship and a unique relationship unlike any other people. So they function prophetically. That's what the laws do do, what the laws do not do. The laws in and of themselves do not produce the reality of what they depict. Okay? So here's very simply what this means. When God um, rescues Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he brings them into the uh, desert, right? And they go to Mount Sinai, and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And he says, he tells them through Moses that he's going to descend on the mountain. And what he says is, but prepare yourselves, consecrate yourselves, because I'm a holy God. And he tells them to make themselves um, ritually clean. And they do that by washing their clothes. That was one thing among many. Okay, so washing their clothes. Now, washing their clothes did not make the people really holy. Does that make sense? So the, the laws depict something, but they don't actually provide the substance of it. You are an unclean people. I'm a clean God. I'm going to come near you, so prepare yourselves. And you're going to do that by washing your clothes as a reminder to you that you're not clean. Washing your clothes doesn't make you holy. Okay? Otherwise, all you got to do is throw your clothes in the wash and Jesus could have stayed in heaven, right? So... So because the laws do not provide what they depict, um, this is an important thing, that there's a promise entailed in that, that they will eventually be provided. So there's a covenant promise that's coming. Be holy as I am holy is what God asks, but also what he provides. So what is clean and what is unclean, Jesus reminds Peter and the apostles when he's here is not about what you do or what you take in, but about what comes out of you. And the only thing that can fix what comes out of you is to have a, a new heart. And that's something that you can't wash on the outside. That's only something that God can provide. Do you see this? So the depiction that you're constantly reminded of, I'm an unholy person. And the only way to be uh, holy is to have a clean heart. And the only person that can provide a clean heart is God. So the laws are not the substance, but they are also not the grounds of God's relationship. God doesn't say, if you wash your clothes so that you can depict a kind of holiness, then I'll be with you. God was already committed to be their God. He had already rescued them. So the grounds of their relationship is always mercy. It's always grace. It's God condescending and coming to them, choosing them. He reminds Israel of that. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You were the least among the nations. Okay? So it's God's uh, it's God's prevenient grace that's going before grace that, he, that precedes him that is the basis of all the relationship. This is seen uh, when the covenant is given and the promise is given to Abraham. Abraham is called 
as a pagan worshiping guy out of his land. That's God's prerogative. It wasn't Abraham who lifted himself above all other peoples that God said, okay, I'm going to choose that guy. So it's God who chose Abraham and called him out. I chose you, I called you, I called you my own people. And through you, the promise is, through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. And that's an important promise because that's the promise that was made in the fall. Okay? All right, now moving on. Verse 11. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, or excuse me, in, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. So these six brothers also accompanied, accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Just real quick, I love that Peter's like, they also did it, just in case we're going to have punishments later. Like, they were there too, right? So uh, these six guys were also, and he, told, um, and he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa, bring Simon, who's called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. The promise is that Cornelius and all his whole house will have salvation. And this promise was made to them before Peter ever arrived. It's a done deal. God has assured them that they will meet salvation. And the other aspect of this I just want you to look at is he says, not just you, but all your household. That's a new detail. It wasn't in chapter 10. You and all your household, his whole house. This um, needs to be expanded, not just, when, when you're thinking household, it's not just his, his kids or his wife and his kids or the people who lived within his four walls. Household is more, a better, is a broader umbrella than you're thinking. It means your peoples, right? Everybody now that through you can be saved, this word is not just you, but you and all of those who come after you, your household. So um, he goes on in verse 15 to say, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he had on us in the beginning. So note when, when the Holy Spirit comes and falls on the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit falls in chapter 10, while he was speaking. But in chapter 11, he says, while well, he began to speak. It's before Peter had even finished his sermon. It wasn't Peter's words. It wasn't Peter's presence. It wasn't Peter's authority. It wasn't Peter's position. It was God's prerogative, which brought the Holy Spirit. It happened before Peter had even finished speaking. It's like, I started speaking, and then the Holy Spirit fell. This is on purpose, um, so that Peter is not the one taking the authority. And perhaps if it had waited for Peter to take the initiative, he would not have done so. And so he says, as I began to speak is when the Spirit fell. And he says, I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so the question here essentially at the beginning is this. Peter, by what authority are you going to go to the Gentiles? Are you going into them? But then that gets expanded even more because it's not only that he went into them, but he shared the word of God and they were saved and then he extended baptism in, to them as well, which kind of, uh, was, was a welcoming in to the community of God. So but by what authority is he doing that? Well, it's not by experience. Even though he had an experience that he said was like the same experience that we had at Pentecost. And it's not just the fact that he was led by the Spirit. He had experience, he had the Spirit, but the thing that really sold Peter on it is he said, I remembered the word of the Lord. He remembered the word of God. It doesn't matter if experience kind of looks the right way. It doesn't matter if you think you were led a certain way. If it's not in the word of God, it's not the right thing. So he's going back to the authority. So the question, Peter, by what authority did you do this thing? By the word of the Lord, okay? By the word of the Lord, I did this thing. Everything lined up 
but it was really God's word through Christ that allowed me to do this. So Peter quotes Jesus' promise back at the beginning of Acts, Acts 1.5, where he said, you, uh, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there contains in this promise, in this statement, a very subtle but huge distinction, and it rests on one pronoun, you, <laughs> you, you. So the identity of who Jesus means when he says you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit means everything. Just after this promise, uh, and if you want to flip there, you can, in Acts chapter 1, in verse 6, what, what immediately happens after Jesus says, you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit, the disciples follow with a question. And they ask, so is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, there's two questions there. One is, at the time, what time are they talking about? Well, when you baptize with the Spirit, at that time, will you then restore the kingdom to Israel? There's an assumption there, a very narrow scope, who will be baptized with the Spirit, who will receive the Spirit and be baptized in it, but also who will be part of this kingdom. So there's, there's two questions there, and um, they presumed that there was going to be only a limited scope um, that would receive this promise. Now, I want to introduce you to the birthday plate. At my house, if it's your birthday, you get to eat off the birthday plate. It says, today's your special day. Now, this plate is not the only plate that was manufactured that says this phrase on it. There was lots of plates that were made just like this. And we don't eat off this plate every day. It sits in the cabinet until it's your special day. Okay. When we brought this into our house, it was a tradition that started in Rebecca's family, and she got it from her parents. So when, when we set this aside and said, this is the plate for special days, when it's your birthday, guess what we did? We made this plate holy. We've set it apart and designated it for a specific purpose. There's a sign that's visible to everybody on it what this purpose is. It's your special day. When you eat off it on your birthday, you are practicing the promise that was made on it. You get to eat off it on your birthday, okay? So we made it holy, but also we practiced the sign of the promise of what it's made. Now, I'm not trying to be blasphemous. I'm trying to give you a visual and a, a, a good illustration of what's happening here in the fact that God has sent his Holy Spirit on a people and that that was followed with baptism, okay? So it's, it's not just an individual that Jesus means when he says you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's in the plural. And so you is not just the apostles and the disciples who heard Jesus say this because that's expanded immediately at Pentecost. So now you has to be the collective you of, well, you and I guess all these other people that were saved at Pentecost. But then even that gets expanded and we find out that many people and the priests and the scribes are coming to be part of this you. Well, then that gets expanded even further as the gospel is pushed out from Jerusalem into Samaria. And now it's like you is, well, I guess all the Jews and the priests and it's also now Samaritans. And so now the, the fullness of what you means is going to be fully orbed when it gets finally to the Gentiles. Now, Gentile sounds like a very specific word because we don't use it, but it's really the more generic word. It's everybody except for Israel. That's, that's the vast majority of people on the planet. Everyone except Israel is Gentiles. So Gentile here is interchangeable with the word or the idea of the nations. It's everybody else. So you is you. Okay? 
because you're a Gentile, unless you were born a Jew. Was anybody here? No. Okay. So we're all Gentiles here. And so you is expanded here to include you, to include the whole Gentile community. All right. Now, I think I may have lost my slide. Okay. We did not lose my slide. Okay. At this point, I want, to, I want you to understand what baptism does and does not do. And uh, just look at this. This is a loose definition. But to baptize someone is to dedicate or consecrate. So to, de- to, to dedicate it to a specific person, to consecrate it, that means to, to set it apart, to make it for a specific purpose, like the birthday plate, or initiate into. You, to, it means the beginning, the introduction into something. You ever heard of baptism by fire? It means you got thrown into something you'd never been in before. It was your initiation to that thing. So to bring under obligation to, and we'll get to fully orb that out in the, in the coming weeks. So, so baptism here is um, as a twofold thing happening. In view right now is not just baptism uh, in water, but baptism by the Spirit or baptism in the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit falling on this people is interchangeable with that, that phrase, if you ever heard, being baptized in the Spirit or the, the Spirit baptism. That's what's happening in this moment. Now, when, when, uh, when Jesus is having his dialogue with um, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in John chapter 3, and we, we know the famous verse, 316, God so loved the world, right? But before he gets to that point, he's, 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 um, Nicodemus is confused about Jesus' statement that Nicodemus needed to be born again. And he says to him in John uh, chapter 3, verse 5, Truly I say to you, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God, or you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And the word there, see, is to be initiated into. You cannot... Uh, be baptized into the kingdom unless you're baptized in water and the Spirit. Now, that's an important distinction and that confused Nicodemus and he goes on because he's talking about how can I be born again? Do I have to somehow be inside my mother's womb again? And Jesus kind of scoffs at him. He's like, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. And by saying that, Jesus is saying, you should have known this all along. It was always prophesied that this was going to happen. So to, to uh, understand what's happening in Jesus' statement there and Having both of these present now, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, get there by verse 17. It says, if then God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter's question is literally this. Who am I, a man, to withstand God? And and the reason why he says it that way is because God had already done something that Peter could not say, well, I can't can't bless that. Who am I, a man, to say God can't do what he wants to do? So effectively this, Peter recognized his own limitations. Can a mere man deny or withhold water baptism, which is a sign from someone who's been spirit baptized, which is God's doing? God sent the spirit before Peter ever said a word. Well, he said a few words probably. and, and that was God initiating this um, new heart baptism of these people. And so Peter says, I, I was not going to stand in the way of that. The gift here is the Spirit, and the Spirit is the gift. But Jesus is the giver of that gift. In uh, Matthew chapter 3, it, it's um, John the Baptist who says, I, I'm baptizing with water, but the one who comes after me, he will baptize you in the Spirit and with fire. He said Jesus would be the one that would baptize God's people with the Spirit. God's authority was being um, poured out on these people by saying, these are also my people. 
God claims them and calls them for his own when he, call, when he gives his very own spirit to them. So when Peter says in verse 34 of the last chapter, in chapter 2, when this is actually happening, he says this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In any nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You is anyone. You is anyone, but it's not everyone. You is anyone, but it's not everyone. There's a qualifier here. Anyone who would come, but it's not everyone who comes. Okay? It's you who are baptized with the Spirit. That's what Jesus says. John baptized with water, but you, the church, the ones that will be called God's people, will be baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit was given not just before, they were, uh, before Peter had finished preaching, but before they were baptized, and also consider that they were not circumcised, which is causing this fracture. So the Holy Spirit fell and baptized these Gentile unbelievers, now believers, were not circumcised and they were not baptized. God is the operator or the initiator of baptism in the Spirit. And our participation in that is to follow that up with the sign that says, that it acknowledges essentially what's been done internally, externally. Okay? So think about it this way. Water baptism is an external visible sign. It's the, it's the printing on the plate. Okay? It says what's true about the plate that maybe you can't see. There's, not, there's nothing special in the chemical or elemental makeup of that plate that says it's a birthday plate. But it's been designated for that purpose. When God says, um, you're my own people, I'm going to give my spirit to you, and he gives you a heart of flesh for your heart of stone, I can't see that in you, right? But it has happened. And the way that we externalize that is to follow that up with baptism in water. So the question is not whether or not these individuals should be baptized in water. That's a given. That's the command that Peter follows this with. And the command follows the internal truth that the Spirit had come and visibly manifested in this case so that Peter couldn't deny it. It was the same gift. It, it wasn't like a little bit unique. So he can identify this is the same Spirit. So I must follow this then with water baptism. So the significance and the purpose of water baptism versus the significance and importance of the Spirit. So Spirit baptism is a gift not for just anyone who wants it, but for those who belong to God. The Spirit is given to all flesh, which is the promise of Joel. I'll pour my Spirit out on sons and daughters, your old men, young men. Okay? Everybody's included in that. Anyone can receive the Spirit now, right? But it's a gift, but it's only reserved for those who God has called His own, that He has reckoned them His own. And He does that with His Spirit. His Holy Spirit is what makes God Say, this is the birthday plate. You are mine. And he does that by giving you his spirit. So baptism in the spirit is receiving the heart of flesh. And baptism in water is an act of obedience. It's a participation in the covenant. And this makes it um, parallel. It's not a perfect one-to-one, but it's parallel to the sign of circumcision. And this gets to the heart of the contention. These, the, the, the circumcision party says we belong because um, we're circumcised. But it's not just the sign in the flesh that they're, they're pointing to. They're saying we also obey the laws of God. And that's what we think makes us acceptable to God. And God's been trying to work this towards the idea that you weren't ever accepted 
One, because you were born to the right family, but two, because you've done something to make yourself holy. You are accepted because you received uh, righteousness because of faith. Righteousness because of faith, which is the reward that Abraham received. Okay? Righteousness through faith. Baptism is an outward sign of the inward change. It depicts and represents our death in the flesh and our rebirth in Christ. Our death in the flesh, our rebirth in Christ. So by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, it indicates that our heart has been circumcised. So the, the, the picture here is that Peter did not withhold the external affirmation that you have been regenerated. You've received the Spirit of God. And Colossians 2, uh, verse 11 and 12, explains it like this. In him, that's Christ, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by hands of men. So it's not something that's done in your flesh, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God. So he's combining the the, the, the act of faith in baptism, but also what that represents is you, you dying in the flesh and being raised through Christ's power to life. So circumcision is somewhat analogous to, but not one-to-one, because, well, we'll get into that when the circumcision debate comes in, uh, in a couple chapters. So rather than belaboring that point this morning, let's look at um, uh, verse 18. Uh, yes. It says, when they heard these things, I skipped that verse, but here it is. When they heard these things, they fell silent. So those, the circumcision party, who was at this point sort of railing against Peter, they fell silent. That just means that their, their question about by what authority, Peter, have you done this, it, it, there's, no, there's no way to respond. There's no argument left to be given. It says they glorified God, saying, well, then to the Gentiles also, to anyone then, to the nations, to everyone, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Look, very carefully, don't skip over it. Who grants repentance? God granted repentance. And he did so by giving them his spirit. It's the spirit that convicts us and guides us into all truth that leads us to repentance. So, rather than just leaving you with, wow, this new knowledge about, okay, baptism and spirit and all that. Okay. 1 Corinthians um, 3.16 reminds us of this. Do you not know that you are the temple of God. You is you. And in this case, it's still the collective, plural, you. You, we, are the temple of God. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, what we need to remember here is um, there's, there's been a hard separation in the minds of the Jews about who can receive God's spirit? And the reason why they have, they're fiercely holding on to this, again, remember, it goes to the core of who they think they are. But they've misplaced who they think they are because they're looking to the law as their identity. I'm clean because I follow the law. And what God's trying to shake them loose of and what he wants to remind us of is that you're not accepted because you are a holy people. I'm a holy God, and I will call you my own, and that makes you holy, and then you're accepted. So we ought not to put up dividers for what God has torn down. God has eliminated that barrier, not just between us and him, of holy and unholy, but also between the, the Jew and the Gentile. So let's not let anyone separate what God has put together and unified in his own body by his spirit, which is what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says. Do you not know that you are God? Oh, no, that's the wrong one. Uh, 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. So if the grounds of our acceptance is is anything in us, whether that's birth or otherwise, then God does discriminate. But what what we've been learning is that God doesn't discriminate based on uh, parameters that are either within our control or not in our control, like who we've been born to. Whatever we do or do not do, or what we will do or have not done, that does not change what makes us clean or unclean. God has poured out his spirit on all flesh without, without making distinctions or pre-qualifications, and that's good news for you. Here's why. <laughs> Not just because you're a Gentile and now you can be saved. Because it, it goes to the very heart of the grounds of your assurance. Because the grounds of your assurance can't be, I've made myself holy enough. Or I've done something, or I will do something to warrant that. Nor is it, I've done the right steps afterward or preceding that qualifies me to be called God's God's own. It's that God has initiated that, called you his own. Now you should live that out. Okay? Like I said, it's not, it's not, it's not we 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 don't live holy lives. We should live holy lives. But your living a holy life does not constitute holiness. It, it's, it's the grounds of your assurance is what's already been done. So we'd be careful in thinking that God maybe saved Jews differently than he saved us. No. It's righteousness as a gift for faith. Faith counted as righteousness. So that's a different message. But um, he's not saving anyone differently than he has always saved. So the declaration made here that they received the same gift that we have. That statement is not made by, by Gentiles about Jews. It's made by Jews about Gentiles. So think of it this way. We've, in our modern age, because there's mostly Gentiles and very few, relatively few, Messianic Jews, we think, well, you know, this is the way that we're all saved. It is, but we've sort of taken ownership of that idea. And um, it's a stumbling block for the Jews now, right? And so it's not that um, we own salvation. It's that salvation came through the Jewish people. So the, the, Jewish, the, the church was entirely Jewish until this moment, even the Samaritans, right? They're a mix, but they're Jewish pretty much by birth. So ethnically, there's no separation. So the grounds of our assurance are, are, are grounded in the fact that God does not make a distinction. And Paul reminds us in Romans that we ought not to then become proud because God doesn't make these kinds of distinctions. He said, Israel's the natural branch, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you've been grafted in, you Gentiles. So don't become proud and, and think, well, salvation belongs to us because it, indeed it does not. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He says, but if you come here, how much easier would it be for God to break off and graft back in what is the natural? That's Israel. So, what is the application here? You're like thinking, well, I don't know. I've already been baptized. I think I've done everything that I need to be. Well, I want, I want you to walk away with a, a few ideas. Primarily this. We, we have... Um, a tradition, and it's in our name. We are a Baptist church, <laughs> okay? But baptism doesn't save. And that doesn't mean that baptism is not important. And so when we think about the kinds of things that we let stand in the way sometimes of the greater message of how God calls us his own or why God calls us his own, we can abuse the, the, the thing that God has given us. Um, if, if you see kind of, if you kind of observe the larger 
um, Christ, Christendom, especially in the West, the, the fact that baptism is initiation into something means, means something significant. And, and we often use it as a, uh, a point of rededication or just some kind of, well, maybe if you're not sure, we'll do it again. And, and I think that is uh, an abuse of something that God gave us for a specific purpose. I don't want to um, make it sound like Peter has all the power because Peter doesn't have all the power. But there's something significant to the fact that Peter had to be there. God could have sent his spirit on the Gentiles without Peter showing up. Peter served a purpose here. Peter is, if you will, the gatekeeper in some sense. Baptism affirms your profession. It says you are now, yes, welcome in the community. We, we believe that you have been regenerate. So, so um, I, won't, I, don't, I don't have to say any names. If you, if you see like sometimes on television or you've been to a church where they'll, they'll have a message and they're like, anybody that prayed this prayer, come up and get baptism. I think that's, I think that's unsafe because I said, I said the grounds of our assurance is in this kind of message. And if you assure somebody without really being sure, you give them a false assurance, okay? So I want to really set that foundation there. It's not Peter, it's not the pastors, it's not uh, policymakers that decide who's in and out. So it's, it's, it's baptism is an affirmation, but we have to be careful about who we give affirmation to. So it's not something you do flippantly. If, if you came to me and said, I, I, I want to be baptized, I would talk with you and I make sure that you understand what the gospel means, that you could articulate that, that you understand salvation, etc., and so uh, I think it's important that we recognize that, that baptism serves a specific purpose, but it doesn't save, right? And it can't not save. Like if, if, you, if you weren't, weren't uh, baptized at some point and you are a believer, that doesn't keep you from salvation, but it is an important sign of what's true and you should do it because it's commanded here. And it's commanded by not just Peter, but it's commanded by the Lord. And then just in general, the, the kind of distinctions that we make about people or even in ourselves. Not, not just that um, we think that we're better than people, because that's definitely in this text. The circumcision party is contending, and the circumcision party is not unsaved. They're, they're saved, they're part of the church, just like these Gentiles are now. But we often look at the things in our life and think, well, I'm holier than that person, because they, they have something in their life that makes them unclean. And the reminder to us and the reminder to the circumcision party at this moment and the reminder to the church always and Israel itself is you're not, you're not loved or accepted because of the fact that you have earned that status. It's God's mercy and grace that he has relationship with you. The foundation of your relationship is not what you've done, what haven't done, what you've done in the past, what you will do that makes you good enough or makes somebody else not good enough, right? The foundation is God's grace. It's God's mercy. And his promise that he will keep covenant relationship even in spite of our unfaithfulness, even in spite of our unholiness. So take that as a, a, an encouragement, but also um, be careful on how you think of other people and even how you think of yourself. And we should still strive after holiness, but remember that's not the grounds of our, uh, our relationship with God. Amen? Let's pray.